if you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as one of the elders in this church. Today we carry on with week 11. Week 11 of our Story of the Bible series. There's 66 books in the Bible. 66 is a little bit more than 11. Uh, we're actually going to end the series next week at 12. So that's still less than all the books in the Bible. Nonetheless, though, 12 weeks going through the basic story of the Bible is important. We're doing this alongside Mosaic Church, our sister church in Austin. And one of the reasons is this, is that we can be acquainted with some of the stories of the Bible. And maybe sometimes implicitly think like, like uh, the common thoughts in the world. Like the Bible is kind of a random assortment of kind of fairy tale like stories. Well, first of all, there's no randomness to it. Second, it's true. Now, there's real facts in real history in the Bible, but there's also variant different genres in the Bible. And all in all, there's one united story that the Bible tells. And I want to just go through some of the things that we've already gone through. We have been picking out plot points from the Bible and from human history, as it were. Plot points that start with the letter C. We started with creation, the beautiful dignity and holiness and joy that we were made for, created for. And then quickly, chapter 3 of the book, the catastrophe of human sin. And human sin infects everything from biology to sociology, to climatology, a lot of ology, sin affects it. And then the, the calling, nonetheless, of God. That God would call forth a people of those who've already rejected him, called by Abraham to bless us by Abraham. And then even the covenant that God makes with rebellious sinners through Abraham's descendant, Moses. And then the, the briefly recovered the conquest of Canaan, and then the crown of Israelite kings, and then quickly the conceit of those kings and the corruption of Israel. And then it would seem like the story ends there. I really feel like, like the, the Old Testament, the way it ends, if it weren't for the New Testament, it would feel like, man, God just stopped talking. It would feel like kind of like the end of Jurassic Park 3, where the credits go up and you're kind of looking around like, no, this can't be over yet, right? Like an abrupt ending that's not quite an ending. Without the New Testament, that's really what the Old Testament feels like. Like God stopped speaking, like he ghosted all the universe, like no reply text, no bubble even. But there is a New Testament. And at the right time, God speaks. So when he speaks, what felt like silence was preparation. God has a tendency to fulfill his promise in ways that we don't tend to predict. He's awesome like that. He flips the script like that. And God sent at the perfect time in human history a different kind of Savior that the world has ever known. The Christ. The Christ, the one who would rescue us, not simply from our external enemies, the things that we tend to see as our enemies, but he would rescue us from our deepest, darkest enemy, the dragon of our own sin, our sin. As Alberto said a few weeks ago, Jesus is the savior we need, not the savior we expect. And Jesus does a lot of 
seemingly unexpected things. Even how he performs his promise is unexpected. He comes and lives a perfect life, the life that we should have lived. And then he dies the death that we should have died so that he can trade his consequence for ours. And he seals the deal and his ability to do do that by defeating death, sin, and hell and rising again from the dead. It's a really cool part of our history. His, his tomb that he was very much dead in is now very much still empty. And then he just left, drops the mic, and leaves because another unexpected twist in history and in the Bible is the age that he ushered in, which is now what we call, it's at least 2,000 years so far, the age of the church, our next see from today. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We're going to talk about the church. We're going to see a letter written from the Apostle Paul, a former enemy of the church, and now one of the leaders of the church. It's beautiful how God does this. It's kind of the story of my life and of yours if you're a believer. God makes enemies into sons and daughters. So we're here we have Paul writing a letter to his beloved church in Thessalonica. Everyone say Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Man, you're already theologians. We're going to read 1 Thessalonians. It's before Timothy, after Genesis and Romans. It's kind of towards the back of the Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Here we go. Paul, Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, you are a good God. Whether we feel your goodness or we feel often not goodness, you're a good God and you give good gifts. But we're prone to mishandling your good gifts, either making too much of them or too little. We're prone to making idols out of gifts that you give or to neglecting them. I pray that you wouldn't let us do that. We pray that you wouldn't let us neglect or overlook the sacred gift of one another. The gift of your church. That our minds would come into alignment with church in a way that's straight out of heaven. And not straight out of our familiarity with organizations or anything else in our culture. 
that we would see you more like you are and that we would see church more like you see church and that we wouldn't simply try to organize church around our lives. Lord, I pray that a supernatural work would be, doing, be done today through the preaching of your word such that we would go from organizing church around our lives to organizing our lives around you and what you've called us together as a church to do in these short days of life. Amen. Amen. For eternity, forgiven sinners, otherwise known as Christians, saints, will tell of the amazing and unexpected ways that God fulfilled his promise in such an unexpected coming of an unexpected Christ. Christ. We, we covered the coming of Christ last week. I think the, the preaching of God's word was fit for his word, and I'm delighted in it. But just as unexpectedly as Christ came, he also unexpectedly just left. Jesus could have ended all of history in his coming. In fact, for centuries and centuries, rabbinical teaching and Jewish thought was such that they, they envisioned Jesus, the, the Savior, the Messiah, coming, and in his coming, basically ending all of history. And, and it seems to make sense a little bit, right? That when he comes and fulfills the promises of what the Messiah was, come to, was here to save us from, it would make sense that the, the earth just kind of stops spinning at that point. Think about it. The Son of God comes to the earth, lives a perfect life. Perfect. Everyone say perfect. Perfect. Then he dies to atone for the sins of humanity. I'm using accurate words here, not hyperbole. He, he lives a perfect life, dies to atone for the sins of humanity. And on the third day, he raises again from the dead. How do you top that? What else is there seemingly to do after that? Why not end it there? I don't know. Let's bring this to a close and pray. No, I think there's good reasons in the Bible. Unexpected. Why, why it doesn't end there. And one of the mysteries is this. That there is a dual arrival. A dual nativity. There is a, a, a two, I'm sorry, a dual advent. There are two comings, not one, of this Christ. In between his first coming, which is to die for the sins of the world, for the chosen in all the world, in his second coming, which is to gather all his diverse and beautiful and powerful saints from the world, between those two is a beautiful, costly harvest. See, Jesus came in his not one but two comings, not simply to fulfill the promises of the Messiah, but to fill the entire purpose of humanity at large. Why are humans here in the first place? Jesus came to solve all of that. And not simply to redeem our sin, which he does in the first coming, but to restore us to all the glory, which he does before the second coming. 
Remember, the, the purpose of humanity was given in chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, where, where God tells Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth. You see, God's goodness and his glory and his manifest awesomeness is just supposed to be shown, not simply in the wildflowers, praise God, the blue bonnets, but in all of humanity and how we relate to one another and how we govern nations. It's supposed to be seen and shown in how we work and how we relate to our sons and daughters. His glory is to fill all the earth. And we can kind of hold that aim up to our experiences in life and see that that's not quite reality yet. Amen? That's not our experience in life. We're not quite perfected, sanctified fully, restored completely. There's something missing. See, the catastrophe of human sin set us back in our original purpose, but it didn't change God's mind about what he wants in humanity. See, Jesus paid for our sin and failing in that end. But on the same cross, he paid the price so that we could complete that end. That's why the go and fill the earth with my glory, fill all the earth. He didn't lose sight of. There's echoes of it in the prophets. As the waters cover the sea, so my glory will cover the earth. And Jesus, right before he leaves, anytime a dead dude raises from the dead and tells you to do stuff, it's like really important to listen. Maybe put down your phone or whatever and just say, okay, this guy's got something to say. He said, all authority is given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all peoples, all nations, every nation. It sounds a lot like be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it's just what that is. It's the restoration of all things that he's still working It's the shalom and the peace in all the earth. It's the joy of the garden, except irreplaceable, irreversible, perfect, eternal joy that's even better than the garden. It's every tribe and tongue in a new heaven and a new earth, which is what we're going to cover next week in our last message. The culmination of the series, talking about the culmination in the future of the whole earth. It's this age of the church ushering in that age. Second Peter 3, God does not wish that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And he's not slow to fulfill his promise in this. So what is his plan for, for fulfilling this, for between his first and his second coming, bringing redemption into restoration and completion. What, what is his plan? Turn to your neighbor and say, I think it's you. His plan is the church. We are called to be dangerously disruptive to the world's systems as we partner with God in ushering in his eternal plan. The church exists to fulfill one primary need in the world. More Jesus. John says we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And if we've seen it, 
the point of still existing and still gathering and still scattering and praying, the point of why we live is seeing more of what we've seen in Christ displayed everywhere, filling the earth, working together to that end. And why is that? Well, we've already shared that. It's so that his purposes in all humanity are fulfilled. But but how? Just a quick warning. That 18 minutes was just my introduction. (laughs) Hopefully you ate breakfast. How? This is the disconnect it's so easy to make where we live lives that we, we can say amen to one thing, but disconnect it from our experience. And I'm praying that God helps you to make a connection between why we exist and how that relates to the things that you suffer through. Because God wants you to know today that there's no mistake. There's no separation between how he's ordained your life to be your day to day right now. There's certain Uh, mountains that you're trying to climb. There's no disconnect between that and his eternal purposes in all the earth. He's God. And he wants you to know that he is God in your life. How do we fulfill our part in this? Check this out. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us. He's speaking to the church. You became imitators of us and the Lord. Everyone say imitators. imitators. How many of y'all, is it your life ambition to be an imitator? Anyone? No? How many of y'all have ever seen a tattoo that says imitator? Or plan on, you know, you're saving up for that tattoo? Well, perhaps you should. We've got tattoo artists in the church here. You should save up for that because there's a difference. Check this out. There's a difference between imitating what we're not and imitating unto who we really are. I'll give you an example. I I don't know how this came up on my Instagram a few days ago, but I saw a little kitty cat kind of copying its mommy and bathing itself with its tongue. Kind of gross, but it's what cats do. Adorable to some. Gross. But it's cat-like nonetheless. So check this out. The cat was, was imitating its mom. Mimicking its mom. Growing in who the cat is. Like a son that sees in his father a projection of who he's meant to be. And in, in beautiful and glorious ways, imitates. What? To be like his father or to be like himself? Yes. Yes. A child that grows up and learns by imitation is not said to be a fake child. It's it's a child that grows in who he is. Now obviously we can there's some imitation that is being unlike you are, but all I'm doing is making the argument that there's some imitation that is growing as you are. And when we are born, we are born not children of God. We're born creation of God, but we're born as as enemies of God in our sin. And when he restores us through faith, he also adopts us in faith. And so now that those who were once once sinners and, and separated from God by our own doing are now restored to God by his doing... And adopted by God and made his own. And what's the rest of life look like? 
Well, he's coming back, and before he comes back, there is some growing. There is some imitating. There is some glory. And for us, maybe we can say, okay, yeah, imitate Jesus, that's good. Uh, maybe I'll go back and try to make some, give some retro power to that WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? Imitate Jesus. Hashtag more Jesus. All that stuff, great. And I'm afraid that some of us can actually kind of end the message there. Like, oh, let's be encouraged. But then walk away from church. Not seeing how the things that you think are categorically different than Jesus growing you in him. Things you think are kind of like, you know, you got your church life, your faith life, but then you got that other life, the roommate issues, the financial issues, the, the busyness beast issues. As if those are separate than the imitation and growing in Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, please do not check out right now. Because if you're brave enough to dig into Scripture and see particularities of what it means to imitate Christ, and certain two certain things that Paul was calling out in this church about specifically what it meant to imitate Christ. If you can be brave enough to allow God to help you to apply that to your life, maybe life as you know it would be different. Maybe you would start to look a little bit more like the disruptive power that we see in the book of Acts. Yeah. Lord, help us to see. So with our time remaining, let's talk about grace to grind and joy in affliction. First of all, grace to grind, to work. Now, in, in these verses, I'm about to read verses 3 through 5, and we see faith, hope, and love in tandem. These three virtues are mentioned together uh, from at least 30 times. I think uh, one of our members, Scott, counted over 30 times in the New Testament. Are these three things, these virtues, stated together? Pieces of who Jesus is, faith, hope, and love. But check out when they're mentioned what comes with them. Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you for what? The work and the labor and the faith, all that stuff. He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. If it comes from God, it might just be virtues that are grown in God, much like God worked them out when he walked this earth. Notice the qualifying words that accompany these virtues, faith and hope and faith and love and hope. These, these qualifying adjectives or, or the, these words that describe them work, labor, steadfastness. I wish I could tell you that in the Greek, uh, they were nicer. But these are still gritty words. Virtue must be refined by fire. Distilled by a fight in our lives. I want to illustrate this with uh, something that someday might be closer to reality. Imagine you just decided you wanted to give me a brand new car. Okay? I like this. this is, I, I originally wrote this down about me giving you a car, but I like to imagine you giving me a car. Okay? A brand new Camaro. 
and, and you also gave me a, a gas card for like $20,000 or something, just to show that my driving and even my fuel does not come from me. It's a gift. So my transportation in general provided for 100% by you. And you came up to me and gave the keys. Would I look at you and say, thanks, but no thanks. In my busy schedule, do you just presume that I have enough time to, to in the future, to just to vacuum all those floor mats and to change that oil? Don't you know how busy I am? That is so, that's so insensitive of you. No, that's absurd. That wouldn't be my response. You see, we know in so many ways that the unmerited grace of a gift is also the same as the unmerited grace to be able to sustain that gift. And the gift of working with the gift that we're giving to sustain and steward it well is also grace. We know this to be true in so many other areas of life. We just fail to apply it to our current difficulties. I'll give you an example. Marriage. The Bible says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Praise the Lord. Uh, there's some energy involved. You wait on the Lord, but there's also some finding too, man. That's a free message right there. Just, you know, just jot that down. There's some finding involved. Lord, help us. But when we find a wife, we find a good thing. What, what happens after that? Work. Marriage involves work. Any married people say amen? amen. Relationships involve Work. Many of y'all know, I've said this before, I grew up in the heart of Caucasia. I'm like a case study for ignorance. Now, I'm not saying I'm like great now, but I'm not as bad as I used to be. I'm less ignorant. And the, the relationships, especially in this church, over the years that God has allowed me to develop, have been totally a gift from God. But part of the gift has involved work. It was, it's, in general, it's hard for me to listen to people that are different than me and through that see a piece of Christ that I otherwise wouldn't see. In general, it's difficult. It always requires work. And especially when in, in cross-cultural relationships that have seemed to have, to have come with a greater cost in recent years because there's a greater design of our growth because Jesus wants us to know that his blood speaks a better word than the enmities of our cultures. And it's a gift. And it's work. I mean, think about your life. Did you know that you're alive? Hopefully you do. And, and part of your life is you have these amazing bodies. Beautiful, diverse, unique Bodies. I mean, we talk about the, the engineering of a, you know, my favorite car, the Camaro, by the way. But your body is more finely tuned and glorious than any of those things. Each organ is, is dumbfounding to some of the most brilliant of men and women in the, in the universe. It just speaks of masterful craftsmanship. In fact, I want you to do something right now. It's going to help you. Put your hands on your body like this, maybe your shoulders. Just put your hands on your body and just declare, fearfully and wonderfully made. Now you can go home and just do that same thing with your words until your mind agrees with the truth that your mouth is speaking. 
For those of you who know Jesus, who've been transformed from the habits and the, the bondage of sin to the, 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 the grace and the work habits of growing in that grace and new life. Did you know that that's a gift from God and it growing in it is also a gift? It's grace to grind. It's work. It's labor. It comes with challenges. Challenges that are greater than cleaning your floor mats. But so much more worth it. Growing as a Christian involves work. And I pray that you would rid yourself of the unnecessary guilt associated with that. It's hard enough as it is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that this all comes from God, Philippians says. The guilt in that doesn't come from God. The shame in that doesn't come from God. Yes, I'm a work in progress. And that work is grace from God. Now we can know this generally. We can nod our heads, amen, yeah, I'm a work in progress. But then so often in the most specific practicalities of this, we miss it. Please hear me because I might just be talking to you and the Holy Spirit might specifically be talking to you in this. For us to be who we're called to be, there is work and pain that he's working in us and that we say yes and amen to participate in. It's, it looks like planned inconvenience often for us to truly be a church and to play our part in the church. You can be ashamed of that and just give yourself over to more fruitless busyness. Or you can just walk in the grace of that. Some of us think sometimes in, in, in church or in other parts of life, we kind of have these false presumptions like, man, if, it's, if it kind of doesn't come naturally, then maybe it's not meant to be. You know, like, like if it's hard, maybe just God's telling me, don't do that thing. Don't develop that virtue. Don't work that out. What if it's the very opposite? Hey, because precisely because this is really hard to schedule into your life, you need to do it. God, help me to find the grace to do this. What if I have a comfortable life and I work out and schedule my life in such a way that things work out for me the way I kind of want it to, but not the way God has planned it? What if your failure to work out life the way you try to And all of the pain associated with things not going your way. What if that's God's grace rescuing you from that outcome that's lesser than he's designed you from? For. Practically, managing the grace to grind, to grow. Figuring out how to consistently, specifically attend growth groups is hard. And it's diversely hard for so many of us. Let me tell you, my friends that I talk to in the Philippines, that in some ways for them, discipleship and working out their schedules because of certain practicalities of their life in Manila, they, they come here and they've planted churches all over the West Coast and, and in Canada. And one of the things they tell me is, man, the logistical nightmare of what it means to be an American Christian. And specifically, they said, what it means to be a woman that is, has to, to carry the, the, the career, the family life that she aspires to in the United States. This is just really hard. But here's what they tell me. 
They say, we just need to be more creative. Because what's really, really hard is of what's, what's of most value. And my wife's not here, so I can pick, her on, pick on her a little bit. I've seen over the last 11 years in church, my wife fight for her growth in relationships and virtue. And before we had kids, in some ways it was kind of easier, even when we started our, our jobs and stuff like that. Then we had one kid and it was like, okay, well, this is, here's something that works for our life now. And if any of y'all parents know, like, managing life is like a constant shuffle. It seems like what worked two months ago, now we've got to, like, start from scratch again. And let me just be honest with you. With my wife, there's been moments where there's been seasons of drought where she just, like, man, semesters long where what we were trying just wasn't working. And what I'm really proud about my wife is, is she's turned the page on different seasons and seen the virtue of relationship and growth happen. Let me tell you, whether it's growth groups or serving in the church on Sundays, church is always changing because we're growing. Your life is always changing because you're growing And what doesn't change is the fact that in the midst of all that, the grace of the gift of life and relationships and the grace of working on that doesn't change. And God's faithfulness to help us in a hard moment doesn't change. We're prone to think things like, you know, other people don't know what I'm going through or understand the complexities of what it takes to manage my life. What if that's true? What if other people don't know exactly what you go through in life and they don't understand your complexities of life? But what if God has helped them, given them wisdom in the complexities of their life, and it's enough to help you with your life? That's been the case in mine. I don't think anyone else knows exactly the challenges that I've gone through. But man, do I have a wealth of people that have given me wisdom. Sometimes that hurts in, in a way that I can grow. Grace to grind. Next, joy in affliction. I'm going to read verse 6 again. Don't miss two peculiar words that just don't seem to naturally harmonize. (laughs) And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Everyone say affliction. Affliction. Affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Everyone say joy. Joy. Good job. Joy in affliction. Now, there's no inherent joy of affliction. I don't think there's such a thing as a Christian masochist. There's nothing naturally joyful about suffering affliction implicitly, like as if that's cool for the sake of suffering. But let's, let's bring this verse back up again. If we omit affliction from this verse, it loses the transcendence of the Christ that we're imitating. Imagine if we read, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word with joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, that would be kind of nice, but not Christ. It wouldn't be the, the transcendence and the beauty of joy in affliction with the joy. See, Jesus was afflicted for the deadness of our sin. 
But he also uses affliction in our lives today to transplant our sinful hearts. Because check this out. Without that, our hearts are incapable of harboring this robust kind of joy. To be places where his joy, his refined joy, which is so much greater than human circumstantial happiness. To have this type of heavenly joy, our hearts need to be strengthened to be able to contain it. And God's goodness is therefore revealed in some of the not good things that we have to work through. The afflictions. God wants to use our affliction and our foolishness and our weakness. Corinthians, he chose the foolish things of the earth to shame the wise. The weak things of the earth to shame the strong. Turn to your neighbor and say, I think he's talking about you. And if you came in here feeling weak and unwise, praise the Lord. God can work with that. God, God wants to use imperfect people to show the perfection of his power. He wants to use impure people to show the, the beauty of his purification. God has shown stronger in using our weaknesses for his strength than if he used our impressive attributes. Uh, the best way I can illustrate this is uh, how impressive was it with LeBron James when he made it to the finals with Chris Bosh? And Dwayne Wade all those years. Uh, if you're not a basketball fan, not that impressive. Those guys were ballers. But last year, with the Cavaliers, he made it to the finals. I mean, I watched some of these games and I felt like, man, I think I could contribute here. And many of y'all don't know because it would appear that I am just a, a world-class athlete. But I'm just telling you, I'm not. And if I felt like I could contribute to this, how great does that make LeBron look? He's amazing. But how much more does Christ display his greatness through our weakness? When he uses me, not once the affliction's over, but right in the middle of my mess. To work out his plan, to draw others to him, to grow me in his kingdom on earth. It's like David defeating Goliath. It wasn't because David was amazing. It was precisely because he wasn't amazing. And God is great right there in our weakness, in our affliction. And check this out, verse 6. It's not just affliction with joy. We have to read the whole verse. It's affliction with the joy of, from, the Holy Spirit. It's from God's Spirit, nothing less. Romans 8, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that are beyond words. 2 Corinthians 5, now all these things, the afflictions, the trouble, they're from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Meaning that he wants to bring an end to enmity on earth and perfecting his people by using our weaknesses. As we close, think about Jesus. What was his greatest display of glory? I would argue that it was in the deepest moment of his affliction on the cross when he died 
not for his sin, but for all of our sin. It was his greatest moment. And if we are to be imitators of Christ, we need to apply that side of him on the cross to the very real things that we suffer through and worry about throughout the week. And we need his help to do that and to apply our faith to that. It's grace to grind. It's, it's joy in affliction. And some of, some of us are just so hyper aware of our circumstances as if that's the whole story. When we need to not try to be unaware of our circumstances and our sufferings and affliction, we need the weightiness of his glory, his affliction, his plan to come and fill that space so that he's with us there. We can pray for healing. We can pray, God, help me out of this. But as we're doing that, we need to have full assurance and conviction that even before he helps me out of it, he's here in it with me. Would you pray with me?